Hey, it's Brandon here and I have some big news. Seven Figure Millennials is now beyond curious. I am so excited for this new brand and I would highly encourage you to go check out episode number 140 for all of the juicy details. But as a teaser for episode 140, the central question for Seven Figure Millennials, the original show from the beginning was, how can we become financially successful and have a big impact while prioritizing our happiness, health, and relationships? I spent over 1,000 hours researching this question and published 139 episodes. And after all of that, I have an answer. And I put together that answer in a legit masterclass that weaves together clips from previous guests all to answer that question. So if you wanna hear my answer, the why behind Beyond Curious and the vision moving forward, go check out episode number 140. But you are here listening to this episode, which I know is amazing, but I would just highly recommend you also check out episode number 140 for the full explanation behind the rebrand. All right, here's your episode. Hey, Brandon Fong here, and I hope you are having a fantastic day, and welcome to another episode of the 7 Figure Millennials Podcast, where it is my job to help you to prioritize your happiness, health, and relationships while making your biggest entrepreneurial dreams a reality. And today's guest is Josh Fonger. Josh is a business performance architect and co-founder of Work the System. Work the System has attracted over 100,000 business owners from over 50 countries. Josh has personally consulted or coached over 500 business owners from more than 100 industries, from small startup businesses to large $500 million enterprises. His specialty is taking stressed out entrepreneurs from working in their business to working on their business using systems so that profit and freedom can become a consistent mechanical reality. His forte which is helping businesses properly organize and systematize their operations so they can achieve exponential growth has resulted in hundreds of success stories from around the world. Many of Josh's clients acknowledge that his ideas and coaching have led to millions of dollars in profit increase and that's also why he's quickly become one of the most in-demand small business consultants in North America. And when he's not coaching or consulting to business owners, Josh enjoys setting up personal systems to maximize his time with his wife and three boys. In this episode, you're gonna learn so much but I want you to look out for three specific things. One, how Josh designs his personal systems to help him live an incredible family life. He has this thing that he shares in the episode where he's done at 4 p.m. every single day so he can take his kids to karate, and every night him and his family have plans for what they want to do together. It's incredible to see how he's structured that so that he can spend quality time with the people that he loves. Number two, Josh's low point of actually losing his house, his car, his savings, and ended up living in his in-law's condo, and to make ends meet, he was landscaping and shoveling rock, delivering potato chips to gas station from midnight to four in the morning and selling life insurance and the powerful lesson that he learned from that experience and how he got out of that situation to do all the incredible things that he's doing today. And number three, four steps that you can take today to use the work the system methodology to grow your business using systems and remove you as the bottleneck for growth. Before we dive in, one last thing is a pre-show listener shout out to Laird underscored Evan, which is slightly modified this for length because he left an incredible, really long review. (laughs) But it says, if you are a top performer, this is the show and Brandon is your guy. His content is revolutionary when it comes to getting or better yet, creating your dream career and even your entire life. From travel to growth hacking to networking, Brandon has done it all. It's great to have a role model our age that shows it can be done and how to do it. So thank you so much, Evan Laird, for leaving that review. And if you're listening to this and you have 
haven't left a review yet, please do so. I will mail you a cookie. Just kidding. I don't know if I can do that yet, but, but what I will do is it will help other people to discover the show. It will make my day and I might give you a pre-show listener shout out in the future. So with all that said, please enjoy this incredible conversation with Josh Fonger. If you had to pick between A, making a ton of money, B, being happy, healthy, and surrounded with people you love, or C, making a meaningful impact on the world, which would you choose? The good news is that today we don't have to choose. So the question is, how can entrepreneurs like you and me, who have a vision for our lives and aren't willing to settle for anything less, how can we become financially successful and have a big impact while prioritizing our happiness, health, and relationships? You and I are on a mission to find out, and we have an incredible journey ahead of us. My name is Brandon Fong, and welcome to the 7 Bigger Millennials Podcast. All right, Josh Fonger, welcome to the show. Super excited to have you here. Glad to be here. Awesome. Well, I, first of all, I just want to publicly thank Dan Cashel for putting us together. And the, the funny story is that I was in this workshop with Josh and I saw his last name, Fonger. And I, I, I sent him a DM right away. I'm like, I met so many Fongs, but I've never met a Fonger before. And it's funny because that was actually my dad's nickname in college. So now I get to know somebody <laughs> that, that has that. But we connected and I knew I needed to have Josh on the show because I was going through his content on Work the System, which we'll dive in today. And I had this spidey sense, like when I get like uh, tingles, I'm like, oh, I need to learn more about this. So uh, hopefully we'll, we'll get to that later, Josh, but I want to start with something else. So what I would like to do is I want to start by dropping people in the middle of the story. And for you, Josh, and the listener listening to this, it may seem like a strange place to start, but I have a plan, I promise. So I'm going to set the stage and then I'd like you to finish the story. Is that okay with you? Let's, let's shoot. Let's see what <laughs> cool, cool. All right. So you're in a grocery store. You have a 1.5 year old, one and a half year old, 1.5, one and a half year old in the front of your shopping cart. You're walking around shopping as usual. And then your son looks up, points in the distance and... What happens? <laughs> oh, that's right. He says cold beer. That's what he Why says. That was, my, that was my son's first reading that he did out loud when we were at a grocery store. Because I don't drink beer, and, but he knew the words and he, he pointed to them and uh, read it out loud. It's kind of cool. And so, so if I, I mean, in doing my research, I found that you did, you do homeschool your kids, which is incredible. And I'd love to kind of maybe talk a little bit about that, but I mean, what was that like? Was that surprising to you when you're like my one and a half year old is reading already or what did you do anything that made that happen? What's the secret sauce? Well, uh, we did, uh, read to our kids, uh, all of our kids a lot when they're young. So maybe that's part of it. Um, but, uh, you know, everyone who's got kids, they're all very unique. Uh, two of our kids are, are special needs and our oldest, uh, is, and, um, on the autism spectrum and just, he really takes to reading. So there's certain things that he's very awkward about. Um, so I probably won't share this recording with him, but, uh, <laughs> for instance, we, uh, but, but you know, reading seems to be something that he can just do very well. He can spell, spell better than me. He can type faster than me. A lot of things he can do better than me. Um, but social situations just um, don't make sense. Uh, for instance, we were at the park once, and um, it was going to be one of those, those uh, where they play a movie um, at the park, and everyone's sitting behind this line in a row of chairs, and the movie's starting, and there's this space before um, the actual screen. And right in the, in the first five minutes of the movie, he just got up, took his chair, walked in front of everybody, and sat right in front of the movie screen. <laughs> and then he waved to me and said, hey, Dad, it's way better up here. You're not behind everyone. <laughs> Let's sit here. And there's like 500 people there. And this is a common situation that that comes up all the time is just uh, he's like, well, obviously, you just sit in the front. He doesn't understand that there's 
people, obviously, piano. But anyways, Front row. makes it exciting. Yeah. Why not? Well, I like that. And I feel like it teaches you when, when you, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like being put in those situations, it's like you learn how much of what our reality is, is just so societally enforced. You know, it's like, it's not like sitting in front row of seat is a bad thing to do. It's just society frowns upon, you know, everybody looking at it. So have you ever, have you ever, what are there any other interesting lessons that you've learned from your son in, in ways that you didn't expect? Uh, well, thousands. Yeah. We can go, we can go all day about lessons you learn from kids. I think the main thing is you, you learn, that um, they're all unique, they're all different, and um, they're specifically designed for you <laughs> to, mm. to help you grow, right? Sure. You're designed to help them grow and, and vice versa. And so, yeah, no, it's, it's, been, it's been quite an experience. And um, my oldest is 15 now, so 15, 12, and 10. Awesome. Well, another thing that came up in my research that I wanted to ask on this topic was that you said one of your favorite books to read with your kids was published in 1678. Um, so would you mind, would you mind sharing what that book is and why it's one of your favorite books to read to your kids? Oh yeah. I, I forgot about that. Yeah. So for those who want to read the second most published and famous book of all time, the most published famous book of all time would be the Bible, of course. Um, it's called Pilgrim's Progress. Yeah, so a friend gave me the book uh, *Pilgrim's Progress* uh, many years ago, and um, that was one that we've had really great discuss discussions with our kids. Um, and um, yeah, John Bunyan—it's it's quite a story, but really, um, it's um, it's an allegory for for life, and it goes has all these you know life lessons built into you know stories with uh, goblins and dragons and these kind of things. But it tells you basically how to how to live the best life. And it goes through that. And it's, it's a religious book. Um, so people, people who could look it up can certainly find that out, but um, yeah, just a great way to captivate my kids in a discussion and gave them a lot and gave me a lot to, to ponder. And uh, yeah, just a great book. So you did, was that a book that was read to you when you were little or how did you stumble? No, upon no, definitely not. No, just a friend of mine, just a friend of mine gave it to me uh, Christmas present. So um, same thing. He's like, Hey, you should read this book. And so, so I did. Well, it's really interesting that you love that so much. And I think it's really cool to look at published works that have stood the test of time, you know, like look at the things that have been around because obviously there's an incredible wisdom behind it. And so much is like, we have all this information, all a YouTube video being uploaded every half of a millisecond. And like, we're swarmed with all this new information. And sometimes I feel like the best stuff is the really old stuff because it's, it's been proven. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I totally agree. Yeah, I mean, that's that is um, people are always coming up with new ideas, innovations, tweaks, hacks, shifts, mindsets, new ideas, new ways of interpreting the world. But uh, the world's been around a long time. And uh, it's certainly um, the way the systems you know, getting to our, our, you know, our main book is that uh, the systems, the ultimate reality, the way things work, uh, hasn't changed. And um, if you are focused in on those things, um, you know, aware of ultimate reality, you can really um, shift things and manage things and control things. Got it. I love that. And so I do, I, there's so many questions I have about the, the work, the system, and I promise we'll dive into that, but there are a few other things I wanted to get as a background, just because I, I, I really love talking and having conversations about people that just are so grounded when it comes to having a great family life and, you know, prioritizing the important things. And another thing that I came across, and again, you're going to be like, you listened to one interview, Brandon, you didn't, you, uh, um, you, you didn't do that much research, but uh, somebody, I came across this quote where you said, my wife is really driven to do what's right, not what's easy 
easier, what's normal. Uh, and I was really interested to listen to that just because I, I, I think that it's, it's interesting to look at who you pair with as a partner in an entrepreneurial journey. So would you mind sharing how you met your wife and what made you say that about her? Sure. Yeah. This is going to be very controversial, this, this whole thing. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I, what parts do I share without boring everyone? So uh, I met my wife at a transition point in my life. I'll just put it that way. I was heavy into worldly living in college. I'll put it that way. And um, was going to make a, a major shift and, and met her. And what I realized is that whenever I would have a discussion with her about a certain topic, she was very deep about any, anything really. Um, it wasn't that, oh, this would be easier. Like for homeschooling, for instance, is a lot of work for her, but yeah. she chose it because this would be the right thing for our specific family situation, our kids and, and our goals. But um, we had some discussions and I won't say specifically what they were about. And I just said, well, everyone believes this. And she's like, oh, well, but it's wrong. So I don't believe that. And, and I was like, but everyone believes this. And she's like, yeah, but it's wrong. So I don't. And I, she was always pursuing um, truth. And I found that very um, intriguing. And so it really was a paradigm shift for me is to know that you can be, and Sam has this great phrase in his book called minority of one, which is um, if your pursuit is of truth, if it is of what is right, if it is what is good, it's okay if everyone else is doing something different. Mm. It, and that's, you don't actually need to be concerned with that. You know, you can stand alone and that's totally fine um, with regards to, so we're, we're very peculiar, right? Like, so we do home births. Other people don't do that, right? Um, and I'm not saying that everyone should by any means, right? Uh, and so there's a lot of things that we purposely do. Like, um, so my kids and I, we, we read books together. Every night we read books together and we're going through this audio series on um, biblical counseling right now. Now, most parents aren't spending time with their 10-year-olds and 12-year-olds and, and 15-year-olds on biblical counseling but they're all really intrigued. We're fascinated. We're discussing it. And that's something that we think is important and we do it and it's very weird and we know it, but it's not, it's, uh, I spent an entire childhood trying to fit into what was normal mm-hmm. and uh, meeting her made me realize that actually, um, why don't you pick a bullseye and have that be what is actually, um, your goal. And then you just go towards that. You don't actually need to well, you know, everyone else is doing this and everyone's doing this. Like, I think the Super Bowl is this weekend. Someone just told me the Super Bowl is on, on Sunday. We're not going to watch it. Now everyone else is going to watch it and that's totally fine. But um, we're going to do something different on Sunday. And it's just, you know, but isn't everyone going to watch the Super Bowl? It's like, well, not everyone, you know, some people are going to do other things. And um, we just have, have decided on purpose that we're going to just do what we think is right for our family and, um, and let everyone else do the same thing. And, but I didn't have that confidence until I, I met her uh, because I was very much a people pleaser and very much go with the flow and very much let's not create conflict. And that was kind of my personality. And I didn't have any, anyone unique like that. So do you, when you are working on growing your business as an entrepreneur, I mean that I, I always like having people that are really blunt you know, like that is just like no sugarcoating it. Like this is how I think about it and take it or leave it. But so do you have those kind of conversations with her when you're just kind of sharing what's going on? And she's like, you shouldn't be doing that. <laughs> or like, oh, do you have conversations like that? We have a really, it's interesting. So um, not so much about business because she's, okay. she, uh, she's not really involved in my business at all. We've kind of done that on purpose. 
And so uh, when I kind of turn off for the day or the night, um, it's, it's, it's family and other things. And then I turn on and it's business and I don't really involve her in the business or the business discussions. Um, it's kind of not her, her world and, and, it, and it helps her mentally focus <laughs> on sure. the things that are actually in her, in her realm. So, so we don't actually have those, um, those discussions. I don't have any good stories, unfortunately. Well, so, so when you say you turn off, like, are you really good about just like, okay, I'm done. I am not talking about business at all. Cause like I, I fall trapped to, I tell my wife about everything. Like I just, yeah. she, she, she probably hears about a million marketing ideas and ideas I have every 30 seconds, just because it's like what we talk about, you know, we share updates throughout the day. So when you say you turn off, is it literally no discussion about business at all? Oh, no. I mean, if there's an interesting, like I, I always have this very interesting clients around the world. So I'll tell her like, Hey, this is an interesting thing. And, and she'll like, Oh, that's interesting. And we'll talk about, you know, different ways to help or coach someone. So mm. the psychology or the fun aspects, but in terms of business strategy, not so much, it's more like I had this client and it was an interesting story and we'll, we'll share that. But um, yeah, I try really hard to, to have a clear stop time and then not to do anything until the next morning. And mm. it's taken years to get to that point because, yeah. you know, when you're an entrepreneur and you work from home, you can always work and it can never end. And there's certainly seasons of that and there's ups and downs in that. And we, we have some folks in the Philippines. So, you know, every Monday night, I do have a, a late call with them uh, late in the evening for me, early in the morning for them. But um, we've just decided that, um, you know, at the end of our life, do I want to look back and say I worked more hours or, you know, do I want to actually have more time invested in things that may have more eternal implications, right? So that's kind of the, the, um, the trade-off. And I think that it's, it's, a, it's a trade-off that every entrepreneur should think about and make a decision about. Because if you don't clearly define what that boundary or border is, um, then you're going to just be carried along by really what your clients or your employees yeah. or team need. And there's an unlimited needs and there's unlimited opportunity and you will just, you know, I, I work with owners, so I see what happens to them. So I'm like, I don't want to be like that guy. And so <laughs> I, I have so many, and it's, it's a unique perspective because I, I only work with people who are in trouble in their business. I mean, no one comes to me and says, everything's great. I need your help. So it's always the opposite. And so I, I get to see hundreds of scenarios that are tragic in really bad ways and just realize that it's not worth it. It's just not worth it. And so um, better to find meaning, hope, foundation, identity, all these things outside of your work and really use your work um, to help as many people as possible and both internally in your team and externally uh, who you work with. And um, if that's your focus and you're driving towards it, you're going to come up with creative new ways to expand it each day. And the way, and this is something that really helped me when I, when I bought Sam Carpenter out of the business a couple of years ago, was that I realized ultimately the way to do the most good would be for me to be teaching, training, and growing the business as opposed to doing it myself. So, you know, four or five years ago, I was the coach. I was the consultant. I was the speaker. And that, that worked, but there was a ceiling to the amount of impact I could have in the world. And so I had to shift the way the business worked in order to make a bigger impact. And I think a lot of people that you hang out with, Brandon, certainly understand that that same thing is that if it, the business is based on you, then you're actually not going to be able to do as much good as you as you dreamed of. 
Yeah, I love that. And I, I want to zoom in on one quick thing that you made there, because this is something that I struggle with. And so I just be kind of curious to hear your refinement over the years is that do you have what is your shutdown routine? Like, is it like 6, 6pm? 6 I'm done. And then, you know, maybe what is the last half an hour of whatever time that is? And it, like, are you setting yourself up your day? Just can you walk us through like what that looks like when you shut down? Yeah, it should be really systematic, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, so. No, what, what really helps me is my kids go to a, a karate class and the karate class starts at five o'clock. So okay. um, I bring them. And, and so I just know that at 4.30, I can't ever work past 4.30 ever. And, and so at four o'clock, all my meetings stop. And so there's always a half hour window to clean up, do whatever, respond to stuff and, and this and that. But um, that that allows me the four o'clock thing is shut down. And then in the evening, I always have all these things that I have planned to do with the kids, whether it's, uh, you know, meals or reading or whatever we're going to do, you know, play game together. So there's always something planned for every night of the week. And so I know I'm not going to change that time. It's already set. And I know I'm not going to change their, their karate time. And so there really is not, there's no way I could possibly work. And so basically about once every two or three months, there's like a massive emergency. And so eight 30, is the time I give myself privilege to get back on the computer if I have to. So then that's, you know, 8.30 to 9.30 is the time when like there really is something I have to do. Um, but I found out over the years that really my best work, so 8.30 to 9.30 is an hour of time. I can do, but I only get a half hour of work done because I'm tired. Right. So I would prefer, and of course, you know, the younger you are, the less this, this affects you. I'm getting old now. So um <laughs> I just do early mornings now. I find out my early mornings, I'm way more effective, more efficient, more focused. And so, uh, you know, went from getting up at seven in the morning to six in the morning to five in the morning. Now it's 4.30 mm -hmm. in the morning. So it's earlier in the morning, there's no distractions, there's no interruptions. You're highly focused, you're highly motivated and you do your best work. And so um, I would much rather have that time carved out. And um, I think that most people are the same way, uh, but it took a while to get there. And ultimately it was, the way to have great focused mornings, because the difference between giving, getting work done at 9.30 at night, 10 at night, and getting it done at five in the morning, th there's really no difference. And right, so right. I'm just like, well, I could do it at 9 p.m. or I could do it at 5 a.m. 5 a.m. I'm going to do it better. I'm going to do it faster. There's less mistakes. And so I always choose the early morning now, whereas I used to not. And um, the biggest way to do that for anyone who's like, that's crazy. There's no one who gets up that early is you just have to start everything earlier. So instead of eating dinner at seven, maybe eating dinner at five 30, you know, instead of, uh, like we don't watch TV, but like for those who do watch TV, um, that was another paradigm shift for me. I met somebody when I was 23 who didn't have a TV and I was like, you didn't have a TV. He's like, no, I'm like, but aren't you missing on this, this, this. And then he's like, no, I'm not missing any of that. I'm actually enjoying this, 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 and this. And I was like, interesting. I didn't know that was possible. And then we get rid of our TV. So like the same kind of thing. It's just like, wow, I could, I could get like 10 years of my life back, maybe more than that. So, yeah, but yeah. anyway, so those things, cutting all those things out of my life gave me the ability to go to bed a lot earlier, you know, nine 30 or 10. We're not, we're not the night owls we used to be. And therefore the early mornings just happen automatically. I love that. And I also, I mean, I grew up without watching TV either. And if, if I had the choice, I mean, so you don't even watch any movies. Like you don't even have a TV to watch movies or how do you handle that we, with kids? Yeah, no, we've got a screen so we can, you know, put something in particular that we want to watch. You know, okay. so if we want to stream something, if there's something particular, but it's more, 
picking something by choice as opposed to going there and just vegging out for two or three or four hours. Yeah. And so, yeah, I can't, I can't think. Um, I think over the last three weeks we watched one movie together on a Sunday and it was Jurassic Park, (laughs) the original (laughs) Jurassic Park, uh, which is still a classic, but, but otherwise, yeah, I mean, most of the stuff is trash in, in my opinion. So I, I just like, well, what would I rather put into my brain? What would I rather put into my heart? What would I rather, because everything affects you, right? I mean, everything you drink, everything you eat, everything you see, everything you watch affects you. And um, I learned more about this through my, I've got some psychiatrist clients and psychologist clients, but it all affects you. And so if you have a choice of what to put in you, instead of saying, well, this isn't too bad, or this is kind of bad, but I could probably still get handle it. The, the pursuit should be what is the best thing that I could put into my brain or whatever. And if you're pursuing that, always you're going to enjoy it first. You're going to, you're going to build up a taste for it, but you're also going to enjoy it more. And then the things that are kind of like, eh, you, you just, they're going to bore you. They're going to bore you. And it just happens. I mean, I can't say it happens overnight, but it certainly, um, cause I grew up, I mean, I grew up glued to the TV, watched probably five movies a week, uh, all through my childhood. So it was kind of like a, it was a, again, another paradigm shift. Yeah. There's a few things I just want to point out and highlight there. One, I think one, something that you naturally do is this, this thing that my friend, Benjamin Hardy, he wrote the book, willpower doesn't work. He, he talks about forcing functions, you know? So it's like, you have plans with your family at, you know, eight and they're like in the calendar, you have karate that happens at five and like by nature of like those things being there, you set up your environment so that you're not allowed to bleed over in your work. And so that was like a really interesting thing too. And I, I want to second the morning thing. My, my juice time, my go time is definitely like the, the two to three hours right after I wake up. So I like really, really found that to be really valuable. Um, okay. So, so I want to dive into the work, the, the system stuff, because this is just incredible. Um, but before we get into that, I just want to get one more final story about if you can maybe share you know, set the scene, what happened in 2008 when you were in real estate development and like, you know, what was that, what was going through there? And then how did that lead into what ended up happening with work, the system? Yeah. Oh yeah. So a big, big life transition. So, um, I, most people don't know this, but I actually got a degree in architecture. So I wanted to be in real estate development, design things, build things. And so I worked with real estate developers, um, out of college and that was during the boom in, uh, Phoenix, Arizona. And I also went and got my, my master's in business at the same time. And so um, after getting my master's in business and kind of growing uh, to a higher role in that particular field, um, I got laid off. You know, everyone's getting laid off in the business uh, because the amount of development that my core client, Walgreens, was doing, you know, just stopped completely. So there's no more work. And so I had to really find out what the heck I was going to do. And in my business thesis, I wrote a thesis paper about um, uh, why you should never hire a business consultant. Um, my dad had some really bad experiences with them. My father-in-law had some really bad experiences with them. Uh, my research on them was kind of like, they just give you boilerplate solutions. You know, they just, they just change the name, they change the day and they change a few numbers. And it's just the same thing. They just, you know, regurgitated. And it's not, you know, it's better to grow it from the inside. It's better to grow the talent from the inside. So that was kind of my, my whole proposition. And so I went to look for work and I could not find work in real estate, nothing, unless I wanted to get a 90% pay cut. And um, I already had a couple of kids and that wasn't going to work. And so I um, ended up losing a uh, you know, house, car, everything, savings, 
you know, major problems financially <laughs> yeah. and um, ended up uh, living in my in-laws condo. And, and uh, one of my friends, um, let me do landscaping. So I was shoveling rock. Um, I was delivering potato chips for another, one of my friends had a business. So I was delivering potato chips to gas stations from midnight to four in the morning. And I was oh selling life insurance during the day. <laughs> so, uh, and that was my, my, just as I was trying to find my next career, it was pretty, pretty was, horrible. For my, I want to uh, say you should, you should have updated your LinkedIn to potato chip life insurance dealer or something like that. Yes. That would have been great. <laughs> <laughs> it was, uh, it was definitely, it was a bummer of a time, uh, financially. It was good. It was good though, in terms of grounding me on the things that really matter in life and also the things that you can't lose in life. Mm-hmm. And, um, and those foundations and that even if, you know, everything is, is lost worldly wise, you don't lose what really matters. And so, um, that was a really good thing. And really the only thing that popped up for me was, uh, to be a business consultant and they really took a massive chance on me. I don't know. I'm not sure why they hired me really. And, um, so I ended up being a business consultant for a company that primarily worked with flooring stores. And so, uh, you know, I was in my mid twenties and I would just fly from store to store to store and help them, with their, you know, with their budgets, I'd help them with their marketing, help them with their sales, sales management training. Uh, you know, I'd build out dashboards for them, help them with their inventory, KPIs, um, cultural redesign strategies. A lot of them are going through bankruptcy, so I'd help them with the reorganizations. Um, it was, um, it was definitely learning, um, learning by doing, right? Because there wasn't any training. It was a very small consulting group. It was like four people in the company, um, and I was the only one that wasn't a family member. And so I just would just fly around and then help these companies uh, put on a workshops. And it, I just remember I was going to put on an outside sales workshop. And so I didn't know anything about outside sales. I never did outside sales. And so I just read three books on outside sales you know, <laughs> two days before, you know, and worked on making a presentation on the flight over there. And then I was like, I did a two day workshop. You know, it was it was not what I would recommend. But um, I just fell in love with the work, I, the challenge, the work, the, the people that you get to help, um, it just was, was something I really enjoyed doing. And so, and I found that I was, for some reason, good at it. Cause you'd, you'd think, you know, this, I had, I had unusual success with it, with these clients and I don't necessarily know, know why, but I just, um, yeah, fell in love with it. And then fast forward a little bit, uh, met Sam Carpenter. Um, he wanted a consulting coaching wing of his business. Basically he wrote that book, uh, work the system. And, um, it was a standalone book, but he was realizing people wanted coaching. They wanted consulting. They wanted help with their businesses. And so I met him, gosh, about 10 years ago, more than 10 years ago. And I uh, started working together. And How did you uh, meet him? Did you just like stumble upon him and you reached out to him or what was that? What happened there? Uh, I was at a lotion store buying some lotion <laughs> for, my, for my wife's, actually for my wife's friend, because she needed me to buy something. Anyway, Long story short, the lady at Bend in Bend, Oregon, gave me a book. Said, "Hey, you know, there's somebody in town who also does business stuff. You should read this book." I read the book, um, and then I gave, a, you know, I emailed Sam Carpenter. Said, "Hey, let's meet for coffee," and uh, he met for coffee. And um, I told him that I had planned to start another business um, in the elder care industry, and I was going to, you know, build this you know, kind of like visiting angels. And he uh, he said it's a terrible idea, and I shouldn't do it. And he said that um, it'd be like herding cats, regulation. He said, just trust me. He's like, you don't want to do that. <laughs> and I was like, no, I really think I should do it. And I continued to pursue it. And then I uh, met with him later. And then he said, uh, you know, how about you just come work uh, with me and help me get this work, the system off the ground. 
And uh, that was that was the beginning of uh, work the system, the you know the, the business aspect of it, not the book. And then ever since then, um, I've been um, working with. It. So I started off as, a, as an employee, a contractor, employee, part owner, um, then licensee, then owner. So kind of like it's gone through the whole transition over. Sure. Over the years. Yeah. So hold on. I want to, I want to pull something out there. Cause I was like, how did you meet Sam? And you said, well, I was at a lotion store. So like, wait, how, how did that, how did, <laughs> so this, this, this person that was giving you lotion, like said, you know, I'm, I'm assuming most lotion dealers aren't carrying a work, the system book around. So how did, how did, how did she know Sam? Well, so this is the, uh, this is the providence of God, right? So she, she was friends with Sam because she liked to cross country ski and Sam liked to cross country ski. And she actually owned her own lotion business. So she sold it out of her business, but she also sold it online. And she said, oh, this book really helped me because I wanted to get things organized. And um, yeah, so that, that was basically how it happened. So it wasn't like in the mall. It was like a separate okay. standalone business where they like custom make and build and create their own uh, lotions there. So it was, uh, yeah, it was definitely not planned. I mean, I think any entrepreneur you, you interview, they don't plan the steps they take, but they they get there. So what was that? So did she introduce you to Sam? You said you sent an email to him. So, so what was that first email like then? Oh, I just said, I read your book. I'm local. Uh, I, you know, work on businesses as a consultant and, uh, think it would be uh, fun to meet for coffee. Can I buy a coffee sometime? And, you know, Sam's super social, super friendly. He's just a great guy. And so he's like, yeah, let's meet. So, you know, uh, so that's how that worked. Awesome. Well, thanks for sharing those details. And I love how serendipitous that was because I, I I listened to a few interviews that you had done and it's just like, yeah, I met Sam. So I was curious to figure out how that happened. So I love how that materialized. I, th- I feel like if you're in the right mind state and if you're actively looking for the right people in your life, things just tend to show up if you're if you're looking for things. I know that's kind of, I'm, I'm, I'm going to interview somebody. Uh, his name is Andrew Kaplan. He's on the show and he wrote this book called uh, the last law of attraction book you'll ever need. So maybe, maybe I'll learn more about law of attraction stuff in the future. <laughs> I know it's kind of like woo woo wee territory, but I really think, I think that's true. Like if you're in the right mind space that like the right, right things show up for you. Have you found that to be true in other circumstances outside of meeting Sam? Uh, yeah, I think that we're always in the right place at the right time. So I think it's, it's a broader sense as in, um, and I think that the deeper someone goes into their belief about, why we exist, uh, who God is, if there is a God, things like that. You just, well, if there is somebody who knows all things and, um, you know, by him and for him and through him and to him are all things created. And you kind of have this, this understanding, then you, you don't think things happen by accident. You don't think things happen by chance. You think things are purposeful. So, I mean, I think yeah. this meeting is purposeful. I think everything is purposeful and that it's not a random accident but that um, yeah, you should show up to it as if this was this was um, supposed to be this way. And what am I supposed to do? Like, how am I supposed to live in this moment? And then you you live that way through each of the moments that you have, knowing that it's not random. It wasn't accidental. Um, and and that the things that you're going through actually um, are for your ultimate good. Um, and so that it kind of. I guess it, it makes each day interesting and makes each day alive as opposed to mundane of the repetition of it, knowing that, um, that this day is unique, it's purposeful, and that you get to be a, a part of, of uh, <laughs> living it out. So it's kind of a long answer to your question, but yeah, 
Well, thank you for sharing that. There, there's one other thing I wanted to zoom in on that you had, you had said. So, you know, part of your story is your, your life, you're selling life insurance. You're also develop, de- delivering potato chips. So like, I, I'm assuming at that time in your life, you're kind of like, I mean, potato chips and life insurance, it's like, that means you're kind of just taking any opportunity that kind of came your way to try to turn things around. So, and, and at some point along you know, potato chips and life insurance to doing what you do today. I feel like there had to have been some component of you kind of turning inward and finding out, you know, what your gifts are and what the heck that you wanted to do. And you're like, I studied architecture and urban planning. How does this all fit together? So did that have to happen? Did you have to kind of turn inward and figure out what you found that your gifts were and how to align that in a business perspective? Um, no, <laughs> not no, exactly, okay. but a great question. And, and the reason why is, um, I had always been doing this one thing in real estate and I had read all the real estate books. And I was like, I'm going to get in real estate and every single real estate job, like I applied for hundreds of jobs and I, in any state, in any country and nothing anywhere, zero jobs. And so it was like, well, I guess I'll just apply for anything really. And, um, you know, I was taking this cash job so I can get cash and collect like you know, a hundred, a couple hundred dollars of unemployment. So it was like, you know, cobbling together these things. Uh, I don't even know if that's legal, but um, that was <laughs> my mindset at the time. You know, how do I cobble together a thousand dollars a month to kind of survive? Um, but uh, yeah, so it really just happened. And I'll tell you what's interesting is a lot of my other friends who got laid off in real estate. I mean, they were going crazy, um, working themselves to the bone night and day as if they could control the the future. And I knew I didn't want to live in fear. I knew I didn't want to live as if I controlled that part of my destiny. And so what I would do is I would set aside time to work, you know, family time in the morning. I'm going to work, you know, there's eight hours looking for work. And then I'm not going to work at night. Like, you know, part of it is just things need to match. And the first week that I got unemployed. First week, I sent out some messages on LinkedIn. This is uh, what, 2008. LinkedIn was kind of a new thing back then. And one of them was to this leader of a business group in Bend, Oregon. And I said, oh, I'd like to join your group. I think it'd be great because I'd plan to move from Phoenix to, to Bend, Oregon. And um, she responded back and said, actually, you know, you got to live in Bend, Oregon to be a part of our group, but it's nice to meet you. And then didn't think anything of it. Four months later, she sends me a message and says, I'm going to be in Phoenix. We should meet. So I met her in Phoenix, had it, had it off. And then she's like, maybe there'll be something for you someday in the future. Cause she was a business consultant. I had not thought about being a business consultant. And then uh, four months later after that, she calls me back again and says, Oh, there's a guy I'm working with. Who's also a consultant and they're looking for a young consultant. I think you'd be a good fit. So really if the only thing I had done for my nine months of being unemployed was just send that message in the first week and done nothing else, <laughs> I would have had the same exact job because nine months later I got hired with the seller consulting company. So everything else I did was basically burning up time, energy, efforts on things that did, that weren't going to materialize anyways. So it, it kind of gave me some perspective that like, you know, <laughs> I mean, I'm not saying it's always the case, but in my case, I really could have, I could have stopped looking for work after that first week and then just non, knowing that nine months later, I was going to have that job um, because I was pursuing everything. And the funniest thing is I actually got in a job also with the government. That was the only job in real estate I could find. It was a government real estate job as an intern. So I had had, um, you know, I don't know, six years of, of 
business experience in real estate, an MBA, an architecture degree. And the only thing I qualified for in the government's eyes was to be an intern in the real estate department. And um, it was like, I don't know, $30,000 a year. So I used to make more money waiting tables, right? And I was like, well, whatever, I gotta get, I gotta get some job. And it was three interviews. There was a background check. There was all these, all these, all these checks. It took them after they said yes to me. It took them six months until I was going to have my first day of work. And um, my first day of work, when I was finally going to work, was the first day the consulting company said I could work with them. And so I just, you know, I was going to make three times more as a junior consultant. So I was just like, well, I'm going <laughs> to take the other job. But um, anyways, it was uh, it all kind of timed out right in terms of that. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing the ups and downs. I mean, it's definitely like so many, so much of entrepreneurship is a really squiggly line. It's a four-year-old with a crayon. And <laughs> and it seems like that's definitely been part of your experience is like just kind of going with wherever it's taking you. And it, 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 now you're on this path today that I'm really excited to dive into the, the the work the system methodology. And the funny thing is, I was as I was reading the book Work the System, and again, he's just for everybody listening to clarify. So Josh's business partner Sam Carpenter is the one that wrote Work the System, and then Josh is now uh, the the the. Are you the sole owner? Or are you still part owner with with yeah. Sam that yeah, owns so Work the System? So those, I mean, we just came up with a new edition, so I got to show it on oh, the screen. Nice. The Go video, for it. But- yeah. So yeah, I get, I get a, my name's on the cover of the book now. Cause I, I wrote some of the sections of the book, all the case studies in the back um, are previous clients of mine and epilogue, but um, yeah. So the book's now in the fourth edition that's been out over 10 years and um, Sam wrote the book, but now um, you know, the book is his and then the, the company's mine. So that's kind of got the, it. The, yeah. Got it. Well, okay. Well, I just ordered the book. I, I know you sent me the digital copy. I ordered the book. So hopefully I get the shiny, shiny new one. Um, uh, we'll find out when it comes out, but it's funny because one of the things that you say in, uh, in the book, and I, I've, I saw a few other interviews that you've done is that the stuff that you teach is boring, that it's, it's boring stuff that works, but I'm just going to, I'm just going to straight up say, this is the most exciting stuff that I've seen in a long time. And so I was diving through it. I'm really excited. I don't know if I'm just like an oddball because like, I, I think the way that you lay this out on how to grow a business systematically by leveraging systems is just absolutely incredible. So it maybe just start by telling us why is work the system important and then maybe lay out kind of the main components of the methodology. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll, I'll try to share it um, for those who have not read the book. I mean, it's about Sam Carpenter and his life. And I think most people can relate to this um, working hundred hours a week in his business. Uh, the business is called Centratel. It's still in Oregon. It still operates. Sam still owns it. And it was a call center and Sam would literally live there. He would sleep there. He would eat there. He wouldn't leave. And he was a slave to his business. And it was a very extreme case. I think most people can understand that is, you know, you feel like if you leave, the company's going to crumble. And in a 24 seven call center, it, it might actually crumble <laughs> because someone's got to be there to answer the phones. Right. And so he was at that point and he was about to give up. And this is after like 15 years in the business. And um, he had this epiphany. It's a, like a dream in the middle of the night. And it was basically, you know what? Uh, my business is really a separate, a series of separate parts. And so we saw this table and the parts of his business as separate pieces, you know, how to hire somebody is over here, how to answer the phone is over there, how we deposit checks is over there. So all the pieces were scattered. And he thought, I wonder in my dreamlike state of, I wonder if I take each of these pieces and make them perfect and put them back together, if I will have a perfect business. And that was the dream. And so he, he took that concept 
and he was able to make payroll the next week and he was able to <clears throat> survive, you know, help from, uh, you know, business partner to give him some money. And he, he's kind of slowly took himself out of that place. And he realized actually his company is made up of a series of, of systems, right? And it always has been, he just didn't see them and therefore he was not managing them. So therefore he was not in control of them. And therefore he was out of control. Like he had an out of control life out of control health, out of control relationships. And he just realized, wow, everything is actually made up of these, these systems, these things that are actually happen through time that are repeatable. And so that was a major <clears throat> shift in his, in his um, perspective of the world. We call it the systems mindset. And so that's the, you know, the first piece of the method that we make sure people understand is that um, you don't need to get systems. You already have them. You just don't know it. You're not managing them. You're not maintaining them. You're not documenting them. You're not training with them but they're there. There's a way you, there's a way you sell, right? It might not be very clear. It might be different every time, but you do do it. And so why don't you instead determine the best way to do it and document it? And we go through a whole, whole way to do that. But that was the big, the big shift. And I think that's the big draw to people with the, with the book and the brand is that they, they can relate to Sam. I think any entrepreneur can is that they just realize they cannot work anymore. They can't work any more hours but they know more, there's more work to be done. And they um, just kind of, they plateau. Some companies, they plateau at a quarter million, some at a half million, some you know, at a million, but they, they hit a, a point where they just can't grow anymore because the owner has to be involved in too many things. And whenever the owner gets sick or their own goes on vacation or one of the key managers leaves, they dip back down. And we call it a yo-yo business. And they basically... They hit that that plateau and then they just they just yo-yo around. They go a little above, a little below, a little above, below. But then they're never going to go anywhere. Actually, the company's going to always stay right about there mm. until something bad happens. They lose a big account, a new competitor comes in, the owner gets sick, a key manager leaves, you know, a business partner decides to to you know blow up the business, whatever it might be. Um, but something bad is going to eventually happen, and they're not going to be able to recover. And um, that's that is the story of small business. Um, you know, you work all your life and it's worth nothing. Like you can't sell it. You can't give it away. It's just, it's a job, right? You've, you've built yourself a job. And so what we do is we work with people who they don't want to have a job. They want to have a business and we help them shift their, their mindset, the, the strategy, their principles, you know, their team, their procedures. And, um, it's a transition period, right? It's, it's hard to do. Um, it's easy to think about, easy to talk about, it's hard to do. And then we, we provide the services to get them through that transition so that now things can scale, things can grow, things can expand and the work hours will go down <laughs> at the same time. And so it's funny how that happens. They think, wow, I'm, I'm producing more, I'm making more, but my work hours are going down. And that's what we try to explain that when you control your systems, that actually is the, that's the mechanical reality you can build. And um, so it's really fun work. Yeah. And the paradigm shift for me and just, I mean, full disclosure, like I I read the book really fast as in like, I just kind of made sure I had the high level on everything, but like the, the paradigm shift for me, that was absolutely incredible is just this simple visualization of viewing your business as something completely outside of you is like this machine that's almost on the side is because I think, I think when you guys describe it, it's like an elevated perspective. It's like something, something slightly above and you're looking down on it. 
And when you're not sitting inside of this machine as like a little thing that's running around, you're able to look at the disparate elements and be like, oh, this part right here isn't really functioning very well. And we should zoom in here, make sure it's well documented. And I think that that simple visualization right there, instead of you just being caught up in all of it, is just a game changing because once you have it externally well-documented, then once you have it documented, then you can systematically tweak and find out what's working and what isn't working. So absolutely love that. And I think that's kind of one of the first parts of the system is this, this uh, owner's mindset component. Is that right? Yeah, definitely. And so um, it's called outside and slightly elevated. Outside, and, slightly elevated. Yeah. And so I think that this is the owners, a lot of owners have this issue where they, they believe they are the business, whether they say it out loud or not. And and or the most important employee in the business, and so we, we definitely want them to to remove that themselves perspe- from a perspective, look down, and you're right, it takes takes the emotions out of it, and it helps you to look logically at the way things actually operate, and um, then you and anyone else in your team can look at those pieces and say, hey, you know what, this is functioning, you know, at a, a C level, and this is at a B level. Let's let's take the C level first and move it up to A, and you can kind of. Um, strategize the way you handle the pieces. Otherwise, it's the, the idea of, you know, I want a great business. Well, you know, that's overwhelming. That's going to be frustrating. You're not going to like have a great business. But if you say, hey, you know, what? we're going to hire uh, somebody next week. Let's develop and document a really great hiring process. And that's something you actually can solve and you actually can document and you actually can use again and again and again. And that's going to be one component. Maybe that's, you know, one half of 1% of your business, but it's one component of your business that now will be really great. And then maybe next week you can build another really great piece of your business. And then, and then you, you're just going to build, um, that's what we kind of say boring, but true, but you know, the accumulation of great systems in your business um, is going to eventually lead to a great business. And there really is no other way to get there because if you just say, well, I hired this great person and this person does great work. Well, that person might not always be there, right? That person might, you know, have, you know, get sick. They might move. They might have a, you know, something horrible might happen to them. Several, several of my clients have had people die in their business you know, before I worked there. Some while I was working there, um, wasn't my fault. Uh, but hey, people, <laughs> it happens, right? Uh, but and so people leave. There, so we try to let them know that the systems are always going to be with you, um, but the, pe- the people may come and go. Um, of course, you don't want them to come and go, but they might, and so. That's why it's so important to, to invest in your infrastructure. Um, and you wouldn't know how many times I hear people say, well, I just need a really great person here. Well, I just need a really great person here. And I think it's the wrong perspective. It's, it's, it's very hard to find really, really great people, but it's, it's not so hard to find good people who, who want to do good work and um, who are trustworthy. And you just find them and you get them in the right place. And every once in a while, you're going to find great people, which is awesome. Um, but if you build a, a business that doesn't require the most amazing, talented, sure, people, you're going to build a company that's going to be resilient. And yeah. um, that's super important for entrepreneurs is that um, they often make it so hard for someone to be successful in their business. And, um, you know, I could share a lot of stories with this, but, um, you know, I was working with a solar panel company and and they were like, I don't think we're asking too much. We just want them to get there, you know, really early at five in the morning, but also stay late. But they have to also work weekends, but also they have to go to conferences with us. And we want to pay them just a little bit more than minimum wage, but then also they have to come here with experience 
And then I don't know why we're having such a hard time. Yeah. And cut off their left pinky toe and mail that in every, every (laughs) like other people. So owners have to realize they're very unique. Entrepreneurs are very unique, very unusual. And they have a high, they have high thresholds for pain and suffering. And uh, they, they enjoy massive challenges. And most people are not like that. Mm -hmm. Actually, they, they want something that is um, meaningful and stable and enjoyable and where their work matters but they don't like change. They don't like disorder. They don't like um, things being different every single day. They actually like routine and um, they like to work their craft on a regular basis. And and so um, if you're not building your company to to operate that way, um, you're going to be always frustrated, always frustrated, never finding good people. And when you find someone who can do all these different things, you are held hostage to them. Um, Not in a I mean, they're not trying to hold you hostage, probably not anyways. Um, but, you know, as soon as they leave, you're, you're screwed. And then you, you, you've gone back 10 years in business because mm-hmm. you never actually built anything uh, in the business. It was just, they were the business, they left. Now that business is not there anymore. Man, there, okay, so you can correct me if I'm wrong here. Um, but when I was at, at a Genius Network meeting, I had the opportunity to learn from this guy that like was a genius at just like build, uh, acquiring businesses. And there are several, several things that you can look at when it comes to increasing the valuation of a business. You know, one of them is if you have like recurring revenue versus one-time revenue is a huge one. But another one that most people I don't think realize is, is it documented? Do you have a proven system in place that can be easily repeated? So like, not only is this make the operation of the business more functional, it definitely increases the valuation of the business because, you know, if you're going to, you know, I think the, the idea that they were talking about is like build it to sell, even if you're not planning on selling it, because like uh, that that's how a, well, a good functioning business should be anyways. But if you have these systems, it will make that transition period so much easier. And I love the point of hiring good people. Um, and obviously you do want great people, but the fact that you don't have to depend on having a rock star in every single position, but make sure that your systems are taking care of the rest of it. I think that's brilliant. Yep. Yeah. And I, and I totally I totally agree with you on the um, the valuation piece. I mean, not everyone's thinking, oh, I want to sell my company next week or next year, or even next five years, but building it so that you could someday or so that if you get you know, injured, you could pass it on. I mean, if you really believe that what your company does is valuable and important, then it makes sense to build it with, with that, that goal in mind. And I think oftentimes people... They try to do it too late. I've seen like, well, I want to sell my business soon. So I need to document all these things. And it's, it's um, you know, it takes some time to do it. And I think the other big piece people don't necessarily understand. And we, we have a, a client with this situation right now. I won't go into details, but um, they think once things are documented, then everything will get better. Like all their problems will be solved. And we try to explain to them that there's plenty of companies with hundreds of processes, procedures documented and their companies are a nightmare because it's if you don't have the foundational mindset within your company, you don't have a strategy that's based on this, and you don't have principles that are based on this, and therefore the culture that aligns with this and the people who want to be a part of this, mm-hmm. it's not going to work at all anyways, right? You, you can hand them a manual and say, hey, do it this way. They won't do it that way. You could say, follow these processes. They won't, or they will for a little bit, and they'll come up with a better way to do it. And not document. They'll, never write it, they'll never write it down. So yeah. then they're doing it differently, and then they leave someday, and then you, you're still luck with the, you're left with a process that's obsolete. 
And so I, I go into companies regularly where they, they've done this exercise before and they have you know, 300 procedures documented. Their company's a nightmare. It's because they're obsolete. No one actually used them. No one updated sure. them. No one maintained them. No one measured them. The culture is not based on it. The strategy is not based on it. The leadership isn't telling them to follow it. There's, the discipline's not there. And so it really is, you know, you do have to align several things to be effective with this strategy. It, you can't just take one piece and think it's going to, going to work. And it's, a, it's kind of a, a shift. And we, one of our principles, we say we only work with mature business owners. And it doesn't mean mature in age, but it just means they've, they've done enough bad, you know, they've made enough mistakes. They've tried enough shiny objects. They tried enough shortcuts in their life to realize they just need to do it the right way. <laughs> so yeah. like, we want to work with people who have, who've hit that point. Like, you know, they've tried everything else that looks easy and simple and now they're ready to just do the, the methodical approach that has always worked through time. And um, they're ready to be committed to something that is going to actually take them there. Um, and it might not take them there in a day or a week, but it's going to take them there incrementally the whole way through. And so those are our ideal clients, but, um, you'd be surprised, you know, in the world of the internet, um, uh, sometimes more flash sells. Yeah. So I'm really curious to dive into one component of that. Cause I, I kind of view there being two kinds of businesses. You have one that has severely documented processes, but they don't have a culture around it. And then you have a company that sees the value of this, but they don't, they don't even, they haven't even started documenting. I'm sure there's like plenty of other kinds there, but I'm, I'm clumping them into two main categories. So speaking to those two different kinds of companies, how do you align? Cause I, I assume the glue between those two things is you need a culture that supports the constant optimization and documentation of these systems. So what is that component? Like when you consult with people, how do you get people excited about <laughs> documenting processes? <laughs> Yeah, well, um, that is a tough one. That's a tough one. Um, companies are typically based on the owner, right? What is the owner thinking? What is the owner feeling? What does the owner want? Everyone doesn't want to get fired. So they just kind of do what the owner says. And we try to get the owner to realize that we can't have the owner, the company be based on how you feel in any given day or circumstance. Um, the company needs to be based on something rock solid that doesn't change, that is always going to be the same and consistent so that everyone can really get congruent, aligned, and you owner can get aligned by it too. And that's what we, we write the, the strategic objective, which is basically where you're going to go and how you're going to get there. And so it, it gives you that roadmap. It's a one-page document. I mean, a lot of business groups out there have similar versions of something like this, and it just, it's just because it works. And so we, we want to make sure that, again, it's not just the owner says, well, we know where we're going, and everyone kind of knows where we're going. That, that's not good enough. You have to actually really be specific, you know, what products and services, who are you targeting? What is the market? You know, what does success look like? Like, how are you going to serve them? What kind of team are you going to build? What kind of culture? Um, what is important? What is not important? Um, those things have to be written down. And then it can be scrutinized and then it can be tweaked. But then that, that gives you the foundation that um, everyone really needs in order to stick with something long-term. Otherwise, you really are just getting tossed back and forth by, you know, the next, you know, the next wave in the marketplace, the next marketing idea, the next technique, and you're not stable. And so that's a big thing we always start with companies on. They don't always want to start with it, but we let them know if you don't do this, the culture won't stick to anything. And the second thing yeah. is the, the general operating principles. Um, again, people will just assume everyone has the same principles, but again, people don't. Some people have principles that have to do with speed. Others have 
quality, some accuracy, some customer service, some, you know, um, winning is, is a big deal. Uh, some people with long-term relationships. And so you have these belief systems, these, these values that actually drive the actions you take. And if every single person brings their own values to you, it's going to be a mess, right? You're going to be in conflict all the time. And so, you know, what is, what does good look like um, is different to different people, right? right? So one person good might mean fast and responsive to so someone else it might mean, you know, well thought out, carefully reviewed, analyzed, and, you, you know, maybe deeper in terms of the language. And so we work on the principles. Second, again, owners want to get right down to the procedures because they want to have a, a, you know, a number of procedures, but um, regardless if it's a company with a ton of processes already documented, we always start here, or we just got a, a, a law firm we're working with right now that um, has nothing documented, but really smart people. And they're like, and they're, they're just growing like mad. And they're like, we need to have these things documented. We all want to do it. But we don't know how. And we're saying, well, this is the way how you first need to clarify that your strategy is not just about putting out fires and trying to find great attorneys and paralegals. Your strategy is about serving this client, doing this way, doing it with this quality, doing it in systematic. So, so they have to slow down a second and take the time to do the hard work of, um, you know, what an owner is supposed to do. And uh, I would say in either case, it's hard. It's always hard, um, but it's because it's different than what people are comfortable with or used to. And uh, that's probably why we exist is because it's, it's hard to do on your own. Yeah. Okay. So I want to synthesize and then I have a few comments that, that I want to make. So, so at a high level, what we've kind of, what, what Josh has covered here. So we've talked about the owner's mindset, which is understanding that you're uh, above and slightly elevated above your business. So you can kind of look at it as disparate elements and learn how to tweak it. Then talking about the strategic objective so that instead of it just being in the brain of the owner, that we've clearly defined something that everybody's on the same page. And the, the comments that I wanted to make here is something that Dan Cashel has helped me realize, the, the mutual friend that, that has connected us. It's like, you would be surprised. And I, I found this to be true talking to many other businesses that like you can have customer service reps that don't even understand what all your products are. Like like the, the more, it's, it's ridiculous. Like, so having a strategic objective and making it part of the culture that you know, everybody in your company should be able to know who exactly your, your, you know, what your objective is, what the goal is for the year, who you're serving, you know, all the products. It sounds stupid, simple, but if you're, if everybody in your company can't clearly articulate that, how can they expect to communicate that to the external world? So anyways, owner's mindset, strategic objective, operating principles, which, which I wanted to zoom in a little bit here, Josh. One thing that I saw from the book that I thought was so valuable is that these are basically decision-making guidelines that allow people to make decisions within the company. Instead of being very rigid, it's like, hey, here are the principles. You can make your own decisions, but make sure that they're backed in this. Is there anything that you want to add to that or zoom in on there? Because I think that's super valuable. Uh, no, I think that's a perfect way. I mean, you obviously did your homework. So yeah, they're, they're guidelines for decision-making. So for one, um, we have one that is uh, the long game principle. So for instance, each interaction and investment should be considered in light of a lifetime relationship. And I'm reading off here. We will patiently reap the benefits of doing the right thing. So that's one of our principles, the long game principle. You know, uh, stagnant water is deadly. That principle has all to do with procrastinating. Like you have to actually move. Yep. You have to actually make a decision and your next decision will inform your next decision. And so it's a, it's a principle of don't get stuck, right? So we have all these principles that guide the, the decisions, right? And we have a principle called profit all the way through, 
which allows us to make decisions that we're not going to take big risks. We're not going to do big, crazy investments. We're going to make decisions that allow us to incrementally profit with what we have and to take uh, reasonable risks in new endeavors that we feel confident are going to profit so that year over year, we do profit more and more as opposed to, let's say a big gamble this year, because the, the people that I'm bringing on my team don't want to work with an owner that gambles. They want to work with an owner that uh, has that type of philosophy. And so that, that helps them clarify the decisions and the ideas and the things they bring to me. You know, they're not going to bring me some you know, totally crazy new idea. They're going to say, hey, based on this product and service we have, we can do this to profit more. And there's this new service we could do that we think we could test out in this quarter. And that will also hit the, you know, the profit all the way through. And it's, it's, um, it's important that owners, I mean, owners think a lot about this stuff, um, but pretty much no one else in your company will. <laughs> so you really yeah. have to make it a part of the, the annual meeting, the monthly meeting, the quarterly meeting. You have to be repetitious about this stuff because otherwise uh, your, your team is not going to be. And it's not because they're not good people. They're just, it's not something that they necessarily see as much value in as you do, but really they're all representations of you and um, you want everyone to be um, congruent. I think congruency, there's a lot of efficiency in congruency and this just allows that to happen. Love that. So uh, high level recap, owner's mindset, strategic objective, operating principles, working procedures. I'm planning on going to town on, on this stuff and I just think it's so valuable. So thank you so much for, for sharing everything, everything here. Uh, one thing that I want to ask, and maybe this is in the book, but I think it'd be interesting to discuss is like how, two things, how do you organize the documentation? So like, I'm imagining you have 300 different docs that are all over the place and it's got to be one hell of a job to make sure that that's cohesive in some way. So how do you organize it? And then once they're documented, how do you measure them? Because I know you have some component of like improving their effectiveness. Yes. Yeah. So I would say um, we customize this for each client and a mature business that um, like when I was working with this oil change, they have multiple oil change spots around the, around the country. Um, they're pretty dialed in, right? They've been doing oil changes a long time. So they know exactly you know, how many customers are going to see at what time, how long it typically takes, how often they can upsell them additional services. And so we're getting really refined in the, the, the systems, the scripting, the, the numbers. And, but a lot of smaller companies and, and newer companies, it, it's not that rigid because, um, and I've tested this out, you don't want to start with measurements when you haven't even found out the core best way of doing something. Mm. And so we always start with, okay, so first, how are you doing it now? And then as we're documented, are there additional things you know you should be doing to make it better? So let's start with that. And then we start to do it in, in the real world and get some feedback from the marketplace and those who are actually using that particular process. Is there a better way? Then they modify it. And then once we get stable with, with that, then it's, okay, so start measuring how this is going up. Maybe number of phone calls, you know, number of appointments set, you know, whatever the particular thing is, just start numbering something that relates to this particular process. And this is not for every process. Like if you have a process for how to make coffee, you, it, the quality and perfection of it probably doesn't matter enough to measure it, right? So only some things are worth the, the measuring aspect. So we sure. don't, don't measure everything. Don't the business success is always the number one priority. So when you are working this methodology, don't get obsessed with getting the methodology correct. Work, think of the methodology supposed to support the growth of your business. And so you don't measure everything. Certain things you will. And then you realize, okay, this is something that we do every day. It has to be perfect. We're going to measure it. 
and you get a baseline. You get a baseline for a month or a quarter, and then it's about testing and split testing, finding out and setting goals and trying to set projections. But until you do the initial work, <clears throat> any numbers and measurements you put in place actually will, they're going to impede, slow down and hurt your opportunity for the innovations and tweaks necessary to find the right way to do something. So I, I, I'm not a big believer in measuring and goal setting in the beginning. I'm, I'm more of a culture of let's figure out the best way to do this and then let's do it and then let's discuss it. And then, and then once we've stabilized it, then we're going to do the measuring. And also, you know, maybe it relates back to the way you actually store these things. Oftentimes companies will say, I really want to use this software and I won't name, there's a lot of good softwares out there, but there's certain ones they'll pick. They'll pick a software and they'll say, we're going to all go in this software. It's going to be great. And then their team has to learn a new strategy, new mindset, new principles, new templates, new software, a new way of doing it. And it's, it is very bloated and difficult. And then they'll just get something in the software and say, look, look, Mr. Owner, I'm done. Um, <laughs> it's in the software, check the box. And they miss the whole point of doing it. And therefore, and I see companies do this and they, they you know, they got a hundred procedures in the, in the software. No one ever uses the software. It's, it, you know, it's not being improved. And, um, then I have to come in and help them, right? As opposed to start off in the most simplest way, you know, Word documents, Google documents, something that everyone can work in, everyone can have feedback on, everyone can can feel comfortable that, you know, this is not, this is not uh, set in stone right now. We're going to be improving this. And they start with those types of uh, frameworks. And then after they give it some time and they're going to move it into a software where it's a little bit harder to modify, but everyone knows that this is, this is the true way to do it. And then we're going to review this once a quarter, twice a year, and we're going to look at it, pull it back out and say, is there a better way to do this? And we're going to tweak it and modify it. But at least we know it's the, the you know, the 95% correct way is, is stored and we can all reference it and we can all use it. And so that's, that's the approach we try to take. I can say that not all of our highest paying clients like that approach because they, they want to just have it. They want it to to look good. I think this is an important thing is that processes need to do good. They don't need to look good. Um, I've, I've seen some handwritten processes, you know, pen and paper that have made companies extra hundreds of thousands of dollars a month. They're, they don't look very good. The, the, the grammar is bad. The sentence structure is bad. The formatting is bad. They're missing some key steps that I wish they had in there. Um, they're not measuring, but it makes a huge difference in the business. But the reason why it worked is it was simple. And, um, it got done. Whereas the ones that, um, you know, I had one client where they had a, um, a PhD in communications that I was working with and the PhD in communications, he, you know, he was like, we don't use a gerund here and the past participle should be over there. And it was all, <laughs> it was like, it was, I mean, I, I'm poor in grammar and it was really hard to read this. And I said, you know, no one is going to actually write a procedure. You, you told them how to do it, but it's so hard to use the software and use your formatting that they're just not going to do it. And lo and behold, you know, two months go by, not a single process is written. And this is a company with 300 employees. They just, people are like, well, I can't do that. And they just, they didn't even try. Um, whereas the ones where I go to it and I just say, Hey, you know, what's the first thing, you know, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Just write that down and they'll just type it up. And then what's the next thing? And then what's the next thing? And then they can, most people are pretty comfortable doing that when they know they're not going to be graded on format, grammar, sentence structure, style. And um, 
that's APA, how you really MLA. <laughs> yeah, you really mind you really mind the uh, the best practices, the ideas. I mean, even the um, even the lowest level employees, the newest ones, the greenest ones, the ones with the least experience can have amazing ideas. They can have amazing suggestions if they're given the framework to do this. And I, I worked in a company um, in my early twenties in a real estate development company, and I got to see this firsthand with a company I worked at because they were extremely process driven. Um, they're, they're really amazing developers and they got rated best place to work, uh, when I was working there, uh, not because of me, but because of their processes. And, um, and I had worked there as a project manager developing very large scale con- construction jobs, um, with very little experience, but it was because they had a process and a procedure for every single thing and how they did it. And the first week I was working there. So I'm, so I'm like, I don't know, 25, 24 years old. And you know, there's 300 employees and I'm telling them a better way to improve their process. I said, if you change this one sentence in one of your construction exhibits, it would protect you against this particular issue. And I emailed my manager. He, you know, told, told the legal counsel, they put it in their new agreements and they said, okay, Josh had a great idea today. This day going forward, update all your processes for this new language. And I saw what happened in one day. And then I realized that you know, it wasn't just my idea was going to help my projects. My idea in, infused into a system is going to help the whole organization yeah. for decades. They probably still use that exhibit that I changed one sentence on, right? So they, they, they got some value from me that's going to live on for decades. And that's, again, that's, that's the whole reason is you are, you are um, codifying the nuggets of gold from everyone in your team. And no longer is the company dependent on you. It's dependent on a system. Yeah. Love that. Well, I want to, I want to be super respectful of your time, Josh. I know we only had like one minute here. So, so are you okay with some rapid fire questions or do we got to wrap things up here? Sure. Yeah. Let's, let's do it. Okay. So uh, kind of a really quick one. I know you have like all these books behind you and I, I wanted to ask you a different question that I would normally ask someone, but I know I, from my research, you say you read a book a week. Um, so I'm kind of curious, how do you choose what book to read? Not what books do you read, but like, what do you, what do you have a process for selecting what kind of books that you read? Huh? Wow. I must've been really under reading to kick back then. Um, I used to read a book a week. Now I'm, I'm, okay. now I'm slower. <laughs> um, slower now. What is my process? Um, my process is to read a book based on what I'm really interested in. So that would be, so if I'm going to be doing a certain kind of selling or marketing or website or whatever the thing is, I'm, I'm purpose, uh, you know, leadership, whatever the thing that I feel like I'm really weak in, or that I'm going to be teaching on or a subject that I think um, is, it really intrigues me. That's how I choose. So it's, it's not systematic. Um, yeah, that's probably as good as an answer I can get. And I, I usually, um, I have probably, I don't know, like four or five books next to me right now. And, um, some of them are business. Some of them are personal. You know, I just bought a marriage book for me, my wife that I'm excited to give her on Valentine's day. So we're always just reading, uh, consuming books. And, um, I think it's it's more just on interest, not not any science to it. I, I think that's that's so true because I mean I think Tim Ferriss is the the person I learned this from. But like, there's a huge difference between just in time information and just in case information. And when you're in school, your entire education is just in case information. And then when you need to like actually use it, it's like, well, let, let me go read some updated resources. So that's definitely how I select books to read. It's like, what can I read, implement, and apply right now? Because if I'm just going to try to implement it later, it's probably never going to happen. So I think there's lots of wisdom to that. Last 
last, last, uh, well, last question. And then I just want to find out where, where people can find out more about what you're doing, but what advice would your 80 year old self give you today? Wow. Um, I think that my 80 year old self would tell me to, um, to not waste your life, not waste your time, <laughs> um, with, with, with worry, um, or with, uh, stress, but instead, um, to focus on, on just focus each moment on making it the best moment. And I know that wasn't articulated right, but I think it's, I think a lot of people there, they take the ups and downs with high levels of stress. And I think that um, I realized that instead of being stressed, you should just um, make the most of the moments and realize you are given everything you need each moment that you live to do the right thing. So you're never lacking resources. You're never lacking energy. You're never lacking time. You're never lacking money. You're never lacking the relationships you need in order to make the right choice in this moment. It's just whether you're going to choose to make that choice. So you can never be a victim of any situation. You always actually already have what you need in this moment. And I think that I'm starting to realize that more and more. And that probably just a reminder to myself is to, um, is to live with that. I think that's beautiful. Awesome. Thank you so much for sharing that. And last really quick question is where can people find out more about all the incredible stuff you're up to? Uh, sure. Yeah. I mean, if so, if they are a small business owner and they like what they hear, then um, uh, we don't go this deep in personal questions, usually with our coaching and consulting, <laughs> but they can go to workthesystem.com. Uh, we, we give away, you know, Sam is very generous in giving away the PDF version of his book at workthesystem.com. And then, you know, we've got uh, called coaching and we've got consulting and we help document people's procedures and we do workshops and a bunch of other things. Uh, so if people are intrigued and they want some help, uh, we're, we're there at workthesystem.com. Love that. All right. Go check out workthesystem.com, everyone. And I'm sure you'll be hearing me on future podcast episodes I'm recording, nerding out about processes that I'm creating as a result of this man right here, Mr. Mr. Josh Ponger. So thanks so much, Josh, for coming on. It's been a blast and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Brandon. Hey, it's Brandon here again, and I have a quick favor to ask before you head off, and that is if you are listening to my voice right now and you are currently using either Apple Podcasts or Spotify, it would help me a ton if you could stop what you're doing, take five seconds to tap the number of stars that you think the show deserves. So if you're on Spotify, there's a place to add a star rating right underneath the name of the show. And if you're listening on Apple, just scroll down where you're seeing all the episodes and there's something that says tap to rate. Just tap the number of the stars that you think the show deserves. And you may not know this, but I typically spend over five hours of my own time each week just researching a guest on the show. And then there's the time that's spent recording the show, the intro, reaching out to new guests, and of course, all the editing, publishing, promoting that my amazing wife and high school sweetheart, Leah, helps me to manage. So all that to say, there's a lot that goes on just to get to the point where you listen to this episode. So if you appreciate the content and have 10, five to 10 seconds to spare, it would help a ton if you could leave a quick rating on the show. Extra credit if you choose to leave a review, but just tapping whatever stars you feel the show deserves helps a ton and it takes so little time. So whether you choose to do that or not, I so appreciate you and I'll talk with you soon.